0: Please pray with me, if you would. Lord, we come now asking that what we have asked and prayed and longed for as we've done this whole series, we ask that we would see Jesus this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would open our hearts and our minds and our souls, that we would be touched by your word, that we would see Jesus more clearly, we would love him more dearly, that you'd deliver us from merely learning stuff that fills our heads, but that you would bring us to learn what you would have us learn that will transform our hearts and souls and minds and lives, that we would praise you and say that we are different because we have encountered you in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> it's, it's easy to get off track, isn't it? Um. A couple of weeks ago, I went downstairs to the basement to switch the laundry over from the washer to the dryer. And I got down there, and then I noticed that the dehumidifier was full and it needed to be emptied, so I got that and poured it out. And then I saw some stuff I had to straighten up, and so I straightened that up. And then my computer was sitting open on the coffee table in front of the sofa, and, you know, we all have the same addiction. I thought, oh, I wonder if I have email. So I looked, and I had some email. Uh, but before I read the email, I was like, well, I'll just check ESPN real quick. Um, LAUGHTER and an hour and a half later, I walked back upstairs and realized that I hadn't done what? I hadn't put the stuff in the dryer yet. I i went down there with a purpose, and I knew what I was trying to do, and, and I meant well, and I just ended up sitting on the sofa. Um, it is so easy to get off track, isn't it? Well, it's equally easy to get off track in your spiritual life. It's equally easy to start out well, to mean well, to find Jesus, want to follow him, purpose to go forward, and then things happen and you get distracted and things get busy and you have to deal with this part of life. And suddenly you've been sitting on the sofa for 20 years. You meant well, you went after, but it's just so easy to get off track. And likely in any group even the size of this, there are lots of us who have this gnawing, nagging feeling that somehow or other in our spiritual life, we've just gotten off track because it's so easy. Maybe more worrisome in a group like ours, there are certainly a lot of people who should be worried that they have gotten off track in their spiritual life, but who aren't. You know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, some time ago, you were at a camp and you said a prayer where you said, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Well, really, not much has happened since then. And if you really looked at it, you know, that enthusiasm that was once there is just gone. And you say, well, I mean, I haven't really read a Bible for a long time. I I guess I sort of pray, but only when I'm in trouble. I I attend church, but there's just nothing. Where's that passion to follow Christ that was once there? How did I get off track? Or I grew up in the church. I know tons of stuff about Jesus. But I'm not sure I actually love him any more than I did a long time ago. Maybe less. Or maybe, you know, I, I flourished in my faith for a while and now it just feels like it's gone or, or at least stale or dead. It is so easy to get off track. Now, the interesting thing about the letter to the Hebrews that we're working on is that, in fact, the letter to the Hebrews is written to a set of people who have gotten off track and don't even know it. And the message to them, and exactly the same message to us, is incredibly simple. The message that this section of the author of Hebrews gives is, it's time to get back on track. And to understand that message, understand how it applies to them and to us, we're going to look briefly at three things this morning. We're going to look at, one, who these people were. Two, what the author of Hebrews warns them about. And three, how the author of Hebrews encourages them. So we're going to do a who, a what, and a how. So first off, who are these people? What can we learn about the people? What do we know about the people that this is written to? Well, first off, we know that the author of this letter wants to teach them about Christ being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's a mouthful. Um, Why do we even know that? Look at the very first verse we read, verse 11. What does it say? The author writes to them, we have much to say about this. Well, what's the this? Well, you have to just look back up to the end of the previous week's passage. This was verse 10, that Christ was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to tell you what that means yet, by the way. Um, The author wants to write to them about that fact. Yet, he says, this is going to be really difficult to explain. Now, why is it going to be difficult to explain? Not because the author doesn't know what he's talking about or it's hard to get for him, but because it's going to be hard to get for them. It's going to be hard for them to understand it because they, he says, are hard of hearing. In some sense, they're hard of hearing. Now, what does that mean? Well, clearly, it's not physically that they really can't hear. This is a letter in this form, at least. But in a a more metaphorical sense, it is hard for them to understand or will be hard for them to understand the things the author wants to say about Melchizedek. Why is that the case? Why is it going to be hard of hearing? Why are they difficult to get this? Well, we find that out from verses 12 to 14. First of all, we learn that they have been Christians for a long time, verse 12. We don't know how long, but long enough that the author of this letter says, by any objective standard whatsoever, you all ought to actually be teaching other people about Christ being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You ought to be the teachers here at this point, by any objective standard. But instead, you're not. Instead, you can't even understand it. I'm worried. Now, why is that happening? Why is that going to be so difficult? What's going on? Well, the reason, he says, is that they haven't grown. They have been sluggish in their faith. They have gotten off track. They haven't gone anywhere with this Christianity thing. They haven't pressed deeper into their faith. And he basically says, in fact, you are so far behind the spiritual growth curve that I'm going to have to use an incredibly demeaning analogy for you all. You all are babies. You are baby Christians. Now, it's not a problem to be a baby Christian if you just became a Christian. But it isn't a compliment here. It's a derogatory thing. You are are babies. You are babies in such a way, a baby can only drink milk because it has no teeth, it's body isn't ready for anything else. It hasn't grown into what it should be. And there is no problem when a baby drinks milk and eats baby food. But if an 18-year-old is still eating baby food and drinking milk and nothing else, you say, there's something wrong here. This is a mess. You haven't become what you should be. Likewise, if a 45-year-old is still acting like he or she is 18, we all go, what's going on? What's with you? And, you know, I realize I might be about to pop somebody's bubble. If you're a 45-year-old and you act like you're 18, trust me, all the other 18-year-olds think you're weird. (laughs) All the other 45-year-olds think you're weird, and everybody's just profoundly uncomfortable about this whole endeavor, okay? We don't like it. We don't mind at all when an 18-year-old acts 18, because they should. We don't like it when a 45-year-old acts 18, just like we don't like it when an 18-year-old acts like a baby, right? It's just not right. It means they haven't grown. Well, that's the problem these people seem to have. They need to have milk because spiritually they're like babies. And so what the author of the Hebrews says is you really need to get to where you can have solid food before you're really going to get it. The the Melchizedek thing is solid food. But I'm, I'm worried I can't feed that to you because you don't know how to chew it up. You haven't grown into what you should be so you can deal with this. So how do they need to grow up? What does it mean for them to get to the point where they could get it about Christ being a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Well, it doesn't mean what you might think. Interestingly, this is not the only place in the Bible where this analogy gets used. Paul uses the exact same analogy in 1 Corinthians 2. And for the Corinthians, he says, you guys are acting like babies who just need milk. You need to grow up and use solid food. And in Corinthians, the way Paul says they need to grow up is they need to grow in charity. They need to grow in kindness. It's not knowledge. The Corinthians had tons of it. It's not spiritual gifts. The Corinthians had tons of it. It's not abilities. The Corinthians had tons of it. Paul says, Corinthians, what it means for you to grow up and quit being a spiritual baby is you've got some charity. Which, if you read the book of Corinthians, they had a noticeable lack of. Well, the same kind of thing is going on here in Hebrews. Look at verse 14. Growing up for the Hebrew believers here, Would involve this, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So, growing up spiritually isn't about more knowledge, really, at least not first and foremost. It's not about more theology. According to this verse, it's more about ethics and more about behavior and more about discernment. It's not learning new stuff, it's learning how to apply whatever you do know. And if you do learn that, then you will be ready to learn some new stuff, he says. But if you haven't been willing to take what you've got, recipients of this letter, and go somewhere with it and practice applying it, he says, it's it's sort of hopeless for me to go on and teach you anything more about Melchizedek, because you can't even get the basics, he says. So here's what we know so far. We know these are people he wants to teach about Christ in the order of Melchizedek. We know they're people who've been sluggish with their faith who aren't really ready. What else do we know about these people? Well, we know what James said the first week we started teaching about Hebrews, which is these are probably Christians who come from a Jewish background. Now, this passage is one of the passages which lets us know that. This is part of how we see that. Because he says, look, I'm still, chapter 6, verse 1, I'm still going to go ahead and tell you about Melchizedek anyway. Even though I don't think you're necessarily ready to get it, I'm still going to do it. Because I don't want to go and repeat the same old basics of the faith to you. And what are those basics? Look in verses 2, well, really 1 and 2. The list of the basics he gives, I'm reading, um, well, not laying in the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death or faith in God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, what's incredibly interesting about that list People sometimes freak out, by the way, and just get this guilt thing going because they look at that list and say, that's the basics? I mean, I don't know much about laying on of hands. I don't know much about washings. And, and you know, so they get this guilt complex going of, I don't even know the basics. I'm even worse than the Hebrew believers. You know, at least they knew these things. That's not the point here. The point here, if you look at that list, and what's remarkable is that every one of those things would be comfortably at home in a first century Jewish household, These are all elements of faith that are there in the Judaism that the believers who received this letter would have come from. And so the way that they had received Christianity was very different than the way that former pagans, former Gentiles had received Christianity. For the Gentiles, Paul comes around and starts saying things like, you've missed it all. You don't get anything right. This is totally different. The way that these Jewish believers had received Christianity was entirely appropriate and right but very different, which is... Here's something that's core to your Jewish faith or a piece or an element of your Jewish faith, like washings, ritual washings, or like laying it on of hands, which we know the Jews used for more than one item. Don't you realize when the gospel had come to them, somebody would have said, don't you realize that these things find their full meaning in Jesus? They find their full meaning in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you believed, you, you don't say what you said to a pagan of, you don't know God at all. What you said if you are an evangelist in the Jewish world, read the book of Acts, is you know Yahweh, but let me tell you what Yahweh has done. Let me show you the fullness of Judaism, which happens in the coming of Jesus Christ. So to them, all of these things were not, this doesn't mean the believers here were Jewish in the sense that they didn't believe in Jesus, but it means the way they had heard about Jesus was that he was the fulfillment of all the rituals and all the ethics and all the beliefs that were already there in their faith an entirely right and good biblical move. So, these are the basics. And by the way, then, if you don't know those basics, don't beat yourself up, because unless you grew up as an observant Jew, nobody's expecting that you would have. I mean, there are a few of you here who are that, but most of us are Gentiles. These aren't your basics. These were the basics for the Hebrew believers. It's the way they had heard about the gospel. And that's why, by the way, the author doesn't really want to go do it again. He says, I know this. You know this stuff. It's not going to make a difference for you. But the Melchizedek thing is going to be really hard because the point he's going to make about Melchizedek is that Christ is fundamentally different than the institution of the priesthood that was in Judaism, the treasured institution of the high priest. This is going to be a hard one when I get to Melchizedek. It's going to be hard for you to understand because it's going to be about what a radical break, what a radical distinction there is between Christianity and the Judaism you grew up with. So this is going to be a hard thing. That's why you've got to grow a little bit to have a fighting chance at getting it. So how are you going to grow? What's the solution, he says? Well, before we get to that, we've got to ask another question. How are we similar to these people? I mean, with the exception of a very few of us in this room, we aren't believers who started as Jews who came to see the fullness of our Jewish faith in Christ. So we're not the same. We don't have the same list of basics. We don't have the same situation. But we do have the same sluggishness. And let's be real. Growing in Christ is kind of hard, and it's a lot easier to be lazy about our faith. It's a lot easier not to do the hard work of saying, God, you say this in your word, and therefore I want to apply it to my life. God, I want to sit here and let you show me places where I'm a sinner. Show me places where I've been wrong. Show me places where I need to repent, change, I don't maybe you guys are a lot more holy than I am but I don't default to that that's hard work that's painful that's difficult and so we do share the same problem these believers have which is we can be sluggish about our faith now not always by no means but we all tend to it and this is why the early church declared sloth one of the seven basic sins right because out of this one sin can spring so many different behaviors So we do have the same problem here, if not in the exact same guise. And we need, therefore, the solution. Now, interestingly, what is the solution the author of Hebrews is going to give them? Well, verse 1, he says, therefore, because you're sluggish, I'm going to tell you about Melchizedek. But then he doesn't do it until chapter 7, verse 1. So this is a hard sermon, in a sense, because the answer to their problem isn't in this passage. It's in what James is going to teach next week. And um, James made me promise, by the way, I wouldn't talk about Melchizedek, so I don't just steal everything he has to say. No, I'm going to do it anyway, and he's just going to have to deal. Um, But I'm not going to say a lot. I'm going to leave most of it for him. But it's really interesting that before the author even gets there, he says, the real answer to your question is that Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But you're not ready for that yet. So I need to do two things to get you ready to even hear the answer that would help you grow. I need sort of two pre-growth things to get you going. And so the author gives them a warning and an encouragement. And what we need to do is understand what those are briefly and understand how they apply to them and to us. The, this is like, you know, when I was an undergrad, I, it was a kind of create-your-own-major, but there was a substantial international relations piece. And we always used to talk about having a carrot and a stick, right? If you've got some piddly third-world dictator and you want to get him to do something... what do you do? You bribe them. You have a carrot. You have encouraging things to encourage them to do what you want, but you also have a stick if you need it. You threaten them if they won't, you know, get there. Well, there's a carrot and a stick here, in a sense. There's the warning, the stick, and then the encouragement, the carrot. So what's the stick? What's the warning? What does he warn them? It's in chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. The essence is this. The essence of the issue is, hey, y'all, if it's been a really long time really long time, by which by any practical means it would seem you should have actually taken your faith somewhere, and you're still a baby, maybe you ought to ask yourself some hard questions. Maybe you ought to ask the question of, am I fooling myself about what my faith really is? Because it really is showing no fruit. It's really showing no development. Now, it's a question you should have to ask yourself. It's not a guarantee. It's nothing that anybody else can tell you for you. But the author says, hey, warning, you ought to ask some hard questions of yourself. And let's just come right out and say what you get in these four verses does not contradict the doctrine we call the perseverance of the saints. Now, let's get that out of theological gobbledygook and say what does that mean. One of the basic Christian doctrines is that if you truly believe in Jesus, you're going to make it to the end. You're not going to bail out. You're not going to give up on him. You are going to persevere in the Christian life. That doesn't mean you won't have ups where you're doing wonderfully spiritually. That doesn't mean you won't have terrible downs, maybe, where it sure looks like you've given up on him. But the doctrine of perseverance of the saints says that true believers in the end aren't going to bail out on Jesus. By no means does that doctrine indicate that everybody who has mouthed certain words, who has just said certain things, who has just repeated some prayer, necessarily truly believes in Jesus. It doesn't justify a cheap grace. It doesn't justify treating Christianity like magic, that if I just say the incantation, I'm safe and then I can go do whatever I want and Jesus doesn't really care. It's it's almost a truism. True believers will persevere. How will we know they will persevere? Because they were true believers. How do we know they were true believers? Because they did persevere. It says nothing about the fact that there are plenty of people who claim the name of Jesus who really don't know what they're talking about or who only partly know what they're talking about So don't take a false comfort in the doctrine. And that's what the the author is saying here. He's saying, sure, true believers really will go forward, but don't don't take that as cheap grace. Don't take that as if I prayed the prayer, I'm okay no matter what. Except you say, wait a minute, Bill, but but look at this. Read this list here. This really sounds like a true believer. I mean, look at what you've got in verses 4 to 8 here. Ones who have once been enlightened who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared the Holy Spirit, and who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. I mean, that sounds a whole lot like a real believer, doesn't it, Bill? Yes, of course it does. That's the whole point. The whole point is that when somebody becomes a Christian early on, even fairly far into their lives sometimes, you can't necessarily tell the difference between somebody who genuinely came to Christ and somebody who said they did, but, but there's something hollow underneath it. There's not really a root to it. They look the same from the outside. So the whole point of the passage is, of course this looks like a true believer. Um, Jesus talks about this when he gives the parable of the sower. Look over in Mark 4 if you want. Jesus talks about the word of God going forth like somebody who's going out and throwing seed around. And there's one type of seed, he says, that falls in rocky ground. Now that means there's a little soil and then really bad rocks underneath it. The plant springs up just like a good plant. It looks great, but under the ground where you can't see, the roots can't get anywhere. It doesn't really develop any depth, any root to itself, Jesus says. And so it springs up. Other seed lands on really good soil where the roots can go down deep, get to water, get to thorough, you know, become a real plant, grow into what it should be. Now, the thing is, if you're walking along a month later, two months later, however long it takes for your seed to germinate, the two plants are going to look exactly the same. On the surface. It's only later, Jesus puts it this way, when the sun comes up with withering heat and scorches the plants that you find out this one looked great, but it didn't have the roots to really get to water and it didn't last. Whereas this other one also looked great, looked exactly the same, but it had roots that went down deep into water and it lasts. So it's only later, sometimes much later, that you really get a sense of what's a true profession and what's a false profession. What's the warning? The warning is, don't let the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints become a false comfort to you. If nothing about your life has changed, say in five years, it's at least worth asking yourself a question. That's the warning. Now, this was a particular temptation for the, believers of this, of the Hebrew believers in this letter. Why is that? The reason is because this letter is almost universally agreed to have been written before the temple was destroyed by the Romans. So Judaism is still in full flower. The temple is there, sacrifices are there, the priesthood is still there. And at that time in history, almost everyone, Christians or Jews, this is a pretty early letter, thought that Christianity Christianity was viewed as a sect within Judaism. It was just one little piece of Judaism. So it's easy, if you're a Jewish believer... To have embraced this new movement within Judaism, this Christian thing, it sounds great, but then as time goes by and you start getting pressure from people who don't like it and you start getting the difficulties and a little bit of persecution and a lot of questions to just sort of say, you know what, I'm just going to pull back a little bit from this movement in which I've gotten involved in. I mean, I'm just going to continue, I mean, it's the same Yahweh, it's the same God, this movement has just been an extension of all these basic principles that I know, so I'm just going to pull back a little bit and just go back to the way it was. And it would feel like you're just switching within sort of subdivisions within the same faith. It would feel like, for you or me, like we were switching from being a conservative Presbyterian to a conservative Anglican, or that we're going from a Baptist church to an Anglican church or an Anglican church to a Baptist church. It would feel like an intramural change. I didn't really change anything. I'm still part of the same religion. And what the writer of the Hebrews says is, no, huge warning. This is not the same thing. If you just back out of this, you know, if a pagan left Christianity, it was obvious they'd left Christianity because they went back to something that was totally different. If a Jewish believer, the recipient of this letter, left Christianity, they might feel like they were just going back to a different version of the same thing. And the writer of the Hebrews says, no warning. If you do that, this is not an immoral distinction. This is life and death. That's the warning. So what's the warning mean to us? What's the application? Don't take false comfort in the fact that Jesus... Promises he will save all his people. Secondarily, I I would almost never tell you I know how the Holy Spirit intends to apply a text to your life. Because I don't. But I think I might on this one. Because almost always when you hear this preach, when people hear this preach, what happens is we start thinking about, wow, I really wish my brother could hear that. Or wow, I wonder if my daughter would have just listened to that. Or, I wonder what happened to my grandmother where I'm not sure she ended up, or what about, what about, what about? I think I could practically guarantee you that's not why God wants us to hear this, why he wants us to hear that warning. He doesn't, I don't think the Holy Spirit cares for you to apply this text to everybody else. I think the Holy Spirit cares for us to apply this text to ourselves and to ask the question, why do I need this warning? What might it be doing in my life? Now, there's a stick, But there is a carrot. The writer writer of Hebrews almost immediately moves on after this to what is the main part of the passage, all the rest of the verses, which is a means of encouragement, how he encourages them. So don't overestimate the warning versus the encouragement. The encouragement is the bulk of this passage. Because here's what happens. When you do what I just did, when you preach this, there are inevitably some people in here of sensitive consciences who start going, oh man, you know, I yelled at my kids the other day. Um, or oh, I, went, I was speeding when I was on the beltway or I got angry at work or uh, maybe I need to be warned maybe I'm not a believer maybe, maybe I'm one of these ones who's fallen away chill out chill out the writer of the Hebrews says look what he says in verse 9 I am really convinced that this warning actually doesn't even apply to you he says well then why did he bother to just give it to him and confuse generations of biblical students and scholars and church members on the way Right. why did he bother to do it Because there is still value, even if you are a believer, to hearing the warning. Why? Because it encourages you to press deeper into your faith. It encourages you not to sit still, not to be complacent, not to be sluggish. And instead, the writer of Hebrews says, I have every confidence things are going to be good for you. Confidence things are going to be good for you in what way? In salvation. Why? Well, if you look at the rest of the passage, it's about who God is. That's why the writer of Hebrews has confidence. That's the encouragement. The encouragement is you can have trust not because of who you are, but because of who God is and what God's done. Look, first, verses 10 to 12 are about God's justice, that God is just. Verses 13 to 18 are about the fact that God is constant, that you can swear by God because God is an immovable rock. The the most important, the most constant, steadfast thing you could swear by is what? God. And so when God himself wants to swear... He has nothing else to swear by but himself because it's the most constant thing in the world. So this is all about who God is. And then verse 19 and 20, the key thing, he gets back to where he's going to be heading in chapter 7. He says, Why does the constancy of God matter? Because we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The reason that you can be certain, the reason you can be encouraged is because Jesus, your and my Jesus, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now what does that mean? You've got to come next week. Except it means one thing. We are going to say one thing that we'll get ahead of next week. All the ancient high priests, the high priests of Israel, every year had to go into the temple and offer sacrifices to take away sin. It was one of the core functions of a priest was to do the sacrifices, But they had to go back year after year after year after year to keep offering the same sacrifice because sin was still a problem. But the author of Hebrews says, Christ went as a different type of high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he made the sacrifice that makes him high priest forever, sacrificing himself for your and my sin. This is a fundamentally different thing than the basics that you might have thought. You can't slide back away from this to something else and say nothing has happened. And you can trust, you can be encouraged that you are safe, that you are good in his arms, that you are held. You can have all the encouragement because your Lord Jesus Christ forever is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So you have great encouragement. And one final thought as we close out of this. It is very, very interesting in this encouragement what the author of Hebrews doesn't do. The author of Hebrews does not say, well, I'm encouraged that we're gonna wait another twenty or thirty years or two days or however long it is till you die. And you're gonna go back and be judged before God, and God's gonna say, Well, you're still a baby. You never went anywhere, but I do know your heart, and at least your heart was good. So you're a baby, but you're safe, you're in. You snuck into the kingdom. The author of the Hebrews' encouragement isn't that at all. That's not in the option set. The encouragement the author of Hebrews has is that you and I will hear this warning. We will hear this encouragement and we will press deeper into our faith. That's the hope, that's the plan, that's the knowledge, that's the trust. Because if we really do appreciate who our high priest is, we really will press on, and we really will persevere. You can count on it. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless us to grow in faith, and grow in hope, and grow in love, and to see you as you really are, and by seeing you as we really are, that we would grow... that our roots would grow deep, that we would press deeper in the faith, that we'd appreciate, because you are our priest, that we can have complete confidence and complete trust and complete hope. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.